Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm joined again by Stephanie Carvin over Zoom. And once again, our co-host for this special series on the charter, that is Charisma Mathen. So once again, we welcome you to the Muskoka Chats series on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, our animal today, listeners may not recognize the call of that animal, but it's actually a beaver. And I actually had to look up the sound of a beaver. I've never actually heard a beaver, but I found it on the internet. And the reason I chose a beaver... If you've never heard it, how do you know it was a beaver? (laughs) Well, I'm assuming it's not uh, fake YouTube uh, naturalist uh, And you know it's not a huge fake out. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag fake beaver. (laughs) But I chose the beaver today because our our focus is actually on section seven of the charter. And and the beaver, of course, is is famous for being a a, a worker, a diligent worker. And and I see section seven as doing a whole lot of work in the charter. In fact, I would say that it does unexpected work in the charter. It's it's often a a right that surprises me in terms of its scope and, and ambit. And so this is our opportunity to talk about this core busy right near the middle of the charter. And so let's start by describing what what Section 7 is. Charisma, do you want to tell us what Section 7 is? Yeah, absolutely. So Section 7 is the first right in a set that's known as the legal rights. And it says that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived of those rights, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So it's a mouthful and it's a bit of a complicated structure, but that's essentially what Section 7 says. Now, what's interesting about Section 7, and and perhaps I approach it because I teach Section 7 as a procedural right in the context of administrative law, but I always partition Section 7 into two components, what I call the trigger component and then what comes once it's triggered. And so the trigger is the life, liberty or security of the person. And so that threshold has to be met before Section 7 applies. And thereafter, you get this thing called fundamental justice. And so we have to understand, I think, both trigger and the issue of what fundamental justice is. And perhaps, Stephanie, you and I have talked about Section 7 repeatedly in the past, although perhaps not in this detail, because Section 7 comes up regularly in national security cases. And so maybe, Charisma, I can just start by by, noting a few cases that people who regularly listen to this podcast or who are otherwise involved in national security might recognize. So Section 7 was the the key right at issue in the famous security certificate cases, immigration security certificate cases that went to the Supreme Court. And there it was, what procedural entitlement does one have when named in a security certificate in relation to which the government is using classified information that never disclosed to the interested party? And so what kind of procedural entitlements flow from that? Other instances of Section 7 being used here, also in the security certificate context, but more substantively, the idea that one cannot be removed uh, through an immigration proceeding to torture. And so the Suresh case, now the Supreme Court put a caveat on that, except in extraordinary circumstances, uh, although I think probably they might roll back that caveat were the case heard again uh, in the modern era. Uh, So that's another example of where Section 7 implicates national security. Uh, Section 7 was also at issue substantively in the Juliet O'Neill case. Juliet O'Neill was the Ottawa citizen reporter, and she was reporting stories on Mahara Rar that contained information that was leaked. We're not quite sure where the information came from, but the RCMP had started an investigation under Section 4 of the Security of Information Act into those leaks. And in the course of doing so, they sought and obtained a search warrant and then rifled through Ms. O'Neill's house and her office. And the Ottawa citizen then brought a constitutional challenge to Section 4. And the outcome of that challenge turned on Section 7 of the Charter. 
And then, Stephanie, you and I have a podcast coming up on the safe third party provisions in the immigration law. And the right at play there is Section 7. And so it's very timely that we're talking about Section 7 now. And so maybe, Charisma, we could start by talking a little bit about the trigger first, and and that is the life, liberty, or security of the person. What does that really mean? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really, it is fundamental to understanding Section 7 that there has to be something that triggers the right at all. So there has to be either an actual deprivation or a threatened deprivation of your life, liberty, and security of the person. Life, I think we can pretty well understand. So anything that's seen as a threat to your life, including a threat to your health, can be seen as invoking one of the Section 7 rights. They're generally pretty rare in Canadian law, thankfully. Liberty has a, a really easy way to understand it and then a slightly more complex way. So the easiest way to understand the liberty interest in Section 7 is if you are at risk of being sent to jail, your liberty interest is implicated. So Section 7 is clearly on the table anytime there's a criminal proceeding that involves the risk of jail. And that's really most of the criminal offenses in Canada. But there's also a broader understanding of liberty, which is your ability to do things that are generally seen as reasonably expected in society. So being able to move around, being able to make certain kinds of important life decisions, that's also part of your liberty interest. So things around reproductive choice, for example, could easily be seen as falling under liberty. The most interesting right is security of the person, which is not something you'll necessarily find in other bills of rights around the world. And what the Supreme Court has said is that refers to being subject to some kind of extraordinary stress that is linked to state action. So it's not just ordinary discomfort or stress from, let's say, having to submit to some kind of administrative procedure. It has to be something that really puts you in almost like a psychological box, or there's something that the state is doing or threatening to do to you that really invokes your essential well-being. So for example, for security of the person, if you're at risk of having your children being taken away from you. That's not clearly a threat to your life. It doesn't really invoke what we think of as your liberty interest, but people's relationship to their children is such a profound part of their identity and well-being that the court has recognized that is the kind of situation where the state is threatening to deprive you of your security of the person. So I have a couple of questions here. I guess the first thing I would note is if I go by the excellent reference that is Charterpedia, which is the basis of most of my knowledge of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's actually a really good source. It is, actually. It's an official source. It's great. It's a a Department of Justice compendium. It's quite good. Yeah, no, I'm a huge fan. I I do notice that this right was in Section 1A of the Canadian Bill of Rights and somehow got demoted to number seven. And the chart, I don't know if that means anything, but I, I think that's interesting. I guess the kind well, of other... narrative said it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean <laughs> anything, right? So there's nothing really to do with order here, is, is what you're saying. Nothing at all. But the, uh, there's nothing in the charter that actually says there's nothing to do with order. No, but you would want something expressed in the text to say that the numbering has Matters. relevance to the importance of the rights. And that, to be honest, that's never actually been raised as an issue by serious constitutional litigators. Because I'm not serious. That's fair. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Sometimes it is raised. For example, right. when there's a conflict between freedom of religion, section 2A, and equality, section 15, you do have some cheeky litigators that say, well, isn't the fact that it's 2A more important in terms of charter litigation? And the court goes, uh, no. Right. So I I guess the second observation I would make is everyone has the rights to life, liberty, and security of the person. But these are the rights that now fall under the notwithstanding clause, which is, of course, Section 2 and Section 7 to 15. So this is Section 7. So this actually is something that is subject to the notwithstanding clause. So how does that work? Well, I am not aware of a case where Section 7 uh, specifically has been singled out by a legislature is saying we're going to suspend the application of the charter to that section. The laws that are clearly the target of the Section 33 invocation deal with other rights than Section 7. It's one of the things I think I was saying at the time, which is that it hasn't been used in all the criminal law cases. Parliament hasn't invoked it, which is interesting because you might yeah. think that would be the clearest place where you would talk, where you would invoke it, but Parliament as yet just hasn't gone there. It might help, though, for us to also just continue the, the structure of Section 7 itself. Oh, sorry. One way to think about it is that we have the trigger, but that's not all you need to show that your Section 7 right has been infringed. And this is what's interesting about the structure. If you look, just look at the text of Section 7, it seems to guarantee you these freestanding rights, life, liberty, and security of the person, yes. and then a separate procedural right. You can't be deprived of them except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. But what the court has said is, in fact, those clauses are fused. You have to show a departure from the principles of fundamental justice in order for the threatened deprivation of life, liberty, and security of the person to actually count as a full Section 7 violation. So the other way to think about it is life, liberty, and security of the person in most Section 7 cases is not the real obstacle. The real obstacle is how has the deprivation been achieved under the law? Have the principles of fundamental justice been violated? Prisma, maybe I could just raise some issues that come up in everyday conversation in relation to Section 7, which do go to the issue of trigger and are often confusing to people. So one example of a Section 7 interest that might be imperiled would be extradition to the death penalty or removal to torture. Extradition to the death penalty, say to the United States, it's not the government of Canada that's visiting the death penalty on the individual. And remember, this pertains to state action, right? All charter rights are designed to constrain state action. And so what's the state action here? It's the removal by Canada, but the death penalty is then visited by another state in the most common situation in the United States. So too with removal to torture is an immigration matter. It's not the government of Canada that's torturing the individual, rather it's the state to which they're returned. And yet the Supreme Court has said both in immigration cases and also in extradition cases, that doesn't matter. And the analogy I point to is the idea of dominoes. And so it's the government of Canada that's knocking over the dominoes that ultimately then result in the, in, in fact, the extraterritorial visitation of the actual deprivation in, in life or security of the person or liberty, as the case may be, by a foreign state. Nevertheless, the court has said that's enough. That's enough to trigger enough of an interest uh, in terms of the person's uh, rights as vis-a-vis the Canadian state that we are going to embark on a Section 7 inquiry. Uh, that's it. It didn't have to go that way. I mean, the courts could have gone a different way, but they didn't, right? And so that's interesting because a lot of people just assume, look, it's a foreign state that's doing the bad, and therefore the government of Canada is not implicated. 
Yeah, there's definitely a, a degree of judgment here in how much is the Canadian state actually implicated. And as you say, the domino analogy is really good. You might also think of like a but for reasoning, but for the Minister of Justice authorizing the extradition, the person would not be in peril of being executed. Now, there is a limit to that so far. For example, if the person is abroad and happens to be independently captured by state agents subject to some kind of criminal proceeding, and in that context is also under threat of the death penalty, the court so far have not accepted that Canada has a positive obligation to intervene under Section 7. And we've seen that argument being made in some cases now involving Canadian citizens who've gone abroad to, let's say, the ISIS caliphate and who are being held there. Canadian state had nothing to do with them going there. But some people are arguing, isn't there a right under the charter to be repatriated? And to date, the courts haven't accepted that argument. They haven't accepted that degree of implication is sufficient to trigger the Section 7 argument. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because this has come up to a certain degree in the famous Omar Qatar case involving Guantanamo Bay. But it also came up in a case that, full disclosure, I was involved in involving an individual Canadian who was on death row in the United States. And a new Canadian government came in and reversed the Canadian government's long-term advancement of commutation efforts. And so the issue was whether there was a Section 7 entitlement that was somehow violated by the government of Canada's stark reversal of efforts to see commutation. And there the argument, and the court never reached it because it was resolved on other grounds, but there the argument was that, that this was enough of an involvement by the government of Canada, that the, there was a causal link, your but-for idea or a, a domino effect. That is, the government of Canada suddenly reversed its view in a very animated manner, which increased the peril to the individual in terms of the prospect that the governor of the state in question would proceed with the execution. And so it's the causality question that becomes ripe in these sorts of debates about the degree of involvement by the Canadian government. I I agree. That's a really interesting question. And you might almost think this is not a charter concept, by the way, but this idea that there's been the creation of a legitimate expectation or there's been the creation of some kind of relationship with the Canadian state through its previous actions. I would also point out that when someone's life is at stake, which again is not the common Section 7 case, the courts tend to be a little more stringent, if you will, than if there are other rights at stake. Yeah. And in fact, that case that I mentioned was actually decided on administrative law grounds, of which legitimate expectation is an example. And it was argued. Stephanie, you have a question. Yeah, I do. So I guess what I was thinking of was the situation we're all in now with COVID-19. And when this first started back in March and April, we saw a lot of governments introduce policies, things like you could be fined $1,000 for walking through a park or if you were stopping at a place uh, for too long. To me, in talking about life, liberty, and security of the person, this would seem to be the charter right that's in question. So is that right? So I would say absolutely a number of the COVID laws that have been put in place that affect, as I say, your basic liberty interest to move around, even if they're not threatening to send you to jail, I don't think you'd have difficulty getting over that first hurdle of the trigger for many of these laws. The interesting argument then would be, have the laws been defined Have and are they being interpreted in a way that is consistent with what we call the principles of fundamental justice, which we we might want to get to so because that's the other half of the section 7 argument that is crucial 
in determining whether someone's going to win their case or not. So why don't we turn to that question? So what constitutes the principles of fundamental justice? And Charisma, I think this is the point at which we revisit the idea that there are basically two categories of principles of fundamental justice. There are the ones that are procedural, and then there are ones that we call substantive. The ones that are procedural are probably more intuitive, right? Because Section 7 talks about deprivation of life, liberty, and security of the person, and triggering then principles of fundamental justice. So it creates this kind of process-like sense. And so it, it does come up, the procedural rights come up quite often. And so I mentioned already security certificates. That was a procedural entitlement. Do, do you have a right to disclosure of more information from the government of Canada when it's using classified information potentially to remove you to maltreatment overseas or not? Um, and there, the Supreme Court in the Sharkawi case suggested that you didn't have an absolute right to disclosure because you had to mitigate the government interest, which was the interest in, in non-disclosure, the interest in using classified information and, and not publicizing it to the world. But you had to find some halfway house. And they constituted what's known as a special advocate system, where you had a security-cleared lawyer who would represent your interests in the classified or closed hearings. And that was all done as part of a Section 7 analysis, some discussion of Section 1 as well, although the Supreme Court abandoned the Section 1 analysis subsequently in a later case called Harkett. But the interesting thing about the procedural entitlements, it's not an absolute list, right? So it's variable according to the circumstances. It's not like you get this menu of procedural entitlements. Rather, the court will look at the significance of the interest. That's the most important consideration, as well as some other variables in deciding what procedural entitlements do you really receive once Section 7 is triggered. And so it becomes very difficult to anticipate in advance the menu of procedural entitlements, and it becomes more art than science in terms of litigating these matters. What about on the substantive side? So before we get to the substantive side, I would like to point out that one of the things the court noted in its first case really dealing with Section 7, which was a case that has the very sexy name of BC Motor Vehicle Act, but in fact, one of the most important Section 7 cases and indeed one of the most important charter cases ever issued The court said, we have some examples in the charter of principles of fundamental justice, and they are the other legal rights. So rights 8 through 14, the right against unreasonable search and seizure, the right against arbitrary detention, the right to an interpreter in criminal proceedings. So a number of those rights are strictly procedural, but the court said there are some rights that are not strictly procedural, right? They include some substantive components. And what court said is we have to look at the purpose of Section 7 in the way that we look at the purpose of all charter rights. And it found that there wasn't enough in the text of Section 7 to justify limiting it to a strict understanding of what we might call due process. That's an American term, but it's the argument that was made at the time. This is just like the Fifth Amendment right around due process. And what the court said is, but it doesn't actually use the term due process. It uses this term principles of fundamental justice. And we think that means something more. It's important to note they were specifically thinking in that case of criminal offenses, or at least provincial offenses, where you could be at risk of being sent to jail. And the court said, there has to be space for the court to look at the actual content of the law, is the law drafted in a way that is fundamentally unfair and is subjecting someone to the threat of imprisonment for a crime that it's just not a reasonable limit, is not reasonable in a society like Canada, which is evinced a commitment to 
uh, constitutional values and to a certain way of thinking about the relationship between citizen and state. Now, it would have been really nice if the court in BC Motor Vehicle had given us a list of all the principles of fundamental justice. It didn't. It identified a, a principle in that case, which we can get into if you like. But what the court said is, we, the court, essentially, are the guardians of the justice system in general. And we will identify, as needed, what the principles of fundamental justice are. So some of them are ones that we would intuitively accept. A law can't be arbitrary. A law cannot be grossly disproportionate in its effect on a person. Uh, A law cannot slap someone with the label of being a criminal if it hasn't shown in some way that they are at fault for what they did, that there was some minimal level of a, a mental state involved. Some of these are more or less controversial, but those are the kinds of things that have come up uh, in the Section 7 jurisprudence. Is this kind of that old pornography ruling? Do fundamental principles of justice have something in common with pornography in the sense that we know it when we see it? Is that effectively what the court's saying? There is an actual test for determining whether something should be recognized as a principle of fundamental justice. I would just note the conceit there is it's always been a principle of fundamental justice, but we're getting around to recognizing it now. This theory of the entire common law approach. So the court's very careful, like, we're not creating this out of thin air. It's always there. It just, we were just never given the opportunity to identify it before. So there is a framework that the court applies. I would note that it doesn't always apply it consistently or in the same way. So is it like that famous American case? It's not totally unlike it, but I wouldn't want to go quite as far as saying it's just how the court is feeling on a certain date. There is a certain coherence, at least in a general sense, to how the court approaches the the concept of Section 7 principles. Right. So principles of fundamental justice, more solid than pornography. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) So charisma, that raises two issues. The first is, to the extent that the, the principles of fundamental justice you're describing involve, well, rather subjective calibration of issues that are themselves are fairly murky, right? So maybe unconstitutional vagueness is a good example of that as well, but also disproportionate impact. And like, it starts to trench on some of the considerations that really typically we think of animating a section one justification, where the, the onus then is on the government to, to justify its limitation on a right. So how does Section 7 and Section 1 work together? Or is it fair to say that Section 7 is almost its own little world, and it's rare that Section 1 will have much of an impact? Because by the time that the court has gone through the whole Section 7 analysis, there's not much left to be said uh, under Section 1, because the same sorts of considerations are coincident, one section to the other. It's a great question. I think in an earlier episode, uh, we were talking about the fact that Section 1, the Reasonable Limits Clause, on its face applies to all of the charter rights. And the court has insisted that it applies to them essentially equally in that you apply the same test. I think we were talking about the Oaks test. That applies to violations of Section 7. But because the charter rights themselves are described in such different ways, where in some cases you just have a clear rule, you have a right to vote if you're a Canadian citizen. Whereas under Section 7, you have this notion of the principles of fundamental justice And so the idea was fairly raised. How can something be in violation of fundamental justice, but also be a reasonable limit? And what the court said in that earlier case, the BC Motor Vehicle case, is you have to apply the Section 1. You have to at least acknowledge the possibility 
that there could be a reasonable violation of principles of fundamental justice. But we think that's going to be really rare. And they talked about extreme conditions facing society. I believe that Justice Lemaire actually used the term uh, pandemic or epidemic of disease, which is interesting. But war, like really exigent circumstances, those are ones where we might be willing to consider that, yes, Section 7 uh, can reasonably be violated. But you're absolutely right. I think that for the most part, Section 7 cases do not give a lot of consideration to Section 1. All of the argument happens at that first stage. Is there a trigger? Has there been a violation of the principles of fundamental justice? You'll go through the mechanics of a Section 1 analysis, but to date, there isn't a lot of hope that the government can win the day under Section 1. And so if you just look at a Supreme Court of Canada appeal, if you look at the fact of the arguments, it's really all about, in particularly, those principles of fundamental justice. And yeah, let me give you an example of that. So I mentioned before the Juliet O'Neill case, which was a lower court decision in, in Ontario. And that issue there, as I mentioned, was Section 4 of the Security of Information Act, which actually predates the renaming and it was part of the Official Secrets Act as far back as uh, 1939. It hasn't really been amended uh, since. That is, Section 4 hasn't been amended. And it was described in the mid-80s as the worst drafted provision in the Canadian statute book, which is quite a record. And in the Juliet O'Neill case, the court concluded that it was unconstitutionally vague, which is, put it, put it bluntly in short form, means that no one could anticipate what line they would cross that then triggered criminal culpability because it was so uncertain, the provision. So it'd be very difficult, it seems to me, to justify that as a reasonable limitation under Section 1. How can you possibly justify something that's on, so unconstitutionally vague that it's a criminal offense that no one knows they're violating? It just doesn't seem to resonate. It's just no way that I can see intellectually you could reconcile those two. I think this might be a good point to also talk about the fact that the principles of fundamental justice, as they, as they have been identified by the court, don't necessarily all seem to employ the same level of severity. So vagueness, for example, is essential to the rule of law, and as is arbitrariness. To have laws that are vague and arbitrary just seems to contradict what it means to have a rule of law society. But another principle of fundamental justice that is a pet peeve of mine, that I actually have a problem with being identified as such, is overbreadth. The idea that the law sweeps too broadly. The court initially didn't think that overbreadth by itself was a principle of fundamental justice, but then in some later cases, it actually accepted that it is. And in the context of overbreadth, particularly if you have a very challenging societal situation, you could see that the mere fact that the law is overbroad, over-inclusive, is something that you could yet see as a reasonable limit given the context. The Supreme Court has never gone that far, but that's an area where I would think perhaps you could see a different, a more tolerable way to make the Section 1 argument. The other thing I would say is Section 7 also applies to a host of offenses that don't quite rise to the level of what we call true crimes, but all these administrative offenses that we're subject to, tens of thousands of them, And in that context, there have been some lower courts that have been willing to say, maybe for these administrative offenses, it also makes more sense to talk about reasonable limits on the Section 7 right, because it just doesn't rise to the level of criminal responsibility. Let me ask a provocative question there, because I I think I share your concern, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but uh, I share your concern about Section 7 being 
well, to put it bluntly, the thin edge of the wedge of what we can call judicial supremacy because of concepts like overbreadth, which put the judges in a, a rather powerful role in essentially engaging in a policy uh, function or something close to a policy function. And so it seems to me the critique of the charter and this debate between constitutional supremacy and the concept of parliamentary supremacy, which we started off this podcast series with, is most acute in the Section 7 context because of the amorphous nature of the concepts of fundamental justice, especially as applied to the substantive uh, rights that we've been talking about. So things like overbreath. And of course, once it's found as a constitutional obligation, there's no way for a legislature to roll that back unless it's prepared to use Section 33 or hypothetically amend the Constitution. And so I, I worry about the, what that does to the, the balance, if you will, the separation of the branches of the state and their respective roles. And I, I don't know how widespread that view is because amongst our colleagues, certainly law professors, we tend to favor the rational process of adjudication and judge-made deliberation than perhaps we favor the legislative process. But I, I certainly am worried about the idea that parliamentary supremacy not be so corroded in what it ultimately is, a democracy. <laughs> And I haven't voted for any Supreme Court judges recently. Yeah, I probably wouldn't put it in quite those terms. I suppose I'm probably a little more uh, sanguine about robust judicial interpretation of Section 7, but there's no question. I use the term the beaver. It's a workforce. It is capacious. It is very large in its scope, Section 7. It can apply to all kinds of different levels of interaction between the state and citizen. And I would just say that I think in terms of the concept of overbreadth, I wonder if part of what's going on is that for the court to say that a law is overbroad, from the court's point of view, it might seem much less inflammatory to use that label than to say it's vague or arbitrary. That that almost sounds more condemning to call a law one of those real deficient features. But then what happens is, in fact, overbreadth starts to become the catch-all Uh, principle of fundamental justice in a way that I think, and this is borne out by some of the cases, the recent cases where it's been really powerful, the Carter case on medical aid and dying, the Bedford case on prostitution, where in fact, if you actually looked at the arguments being made, there were probably other principles of fundamental justice that were a better fit, but the court seems to be really comfortable with the principle of overbreadth, ironically, perhaps because it sees that as less of a slam on the legislature to use that concept as opposed to one of the other principles. I just want to note that beavers, although they work hard, they still live in mud holes. So I I feel (laughs) that that might be appropriate for this discussion. I I guess that's a really interesting question that you're raising. If I look through my non-expert eyes here, it's the idea of when is it a good idea for the court to basically declare uh, something a bad policy because it's too big? And does that actually raise some fairly serious questions about where the court's going and, and what they can do? And with Craig, if I was going to vote for any Supreme Court justice, it would be Amicus, the Supreme Court mascot, who obviously I would just put him in charge of everything. But we've had that discussion here before. But is there any other charter right where this is the case where the Supreme Court justices have actually declared something to be overbroad? Or is this kind of a one off? Oh, absolutely. Well, freedom of expression, like any of the fundamental freedoms claims can involve laws that are overbroad. Like they just, they capture more expression than is, than is reasonable. The issue there is though, 
the concept of overbreath comes into play at the section one stage of those claims. So do you mean when you say it comes in for section one, does this mean that it's not reasonable in a democratic society? Yeah. So the section one stage would be you've already shown that it's that your freedom of expression has been infringed. Then you're looking at whether it's a reasonable limit. And at that stage of the charter game, I think talking about overbreath makes a whole lot of sense. Like, of course, you want to consider how sweeping uh, this law it, right. is. It's so sweeping that it's, in fact, not a reasonable limit. So it does come into play in a number of other charter rights, but it's also it's this very complex way that Section 7 has been constructed that gives rise to this more complicated jurisprudence. I did just also want, want to point out that one of the, the seminal cases of Section 7 is the Morgenthaler decision around the criminal law around abortion. And one of the issues there was the framers actually talked about abortion and were very confident that it, it wasn't being decided by anything that was put in the charter. And the court ultimately, a majority of the justices found that that therapeutic abortion law violated a number of different rights in Section 7, particularly the right of security of the person. So that's an early example of a Section 7 case that really showed us how expansive this concept of security of the person was. Putting a woman to the choice of either terminating her pregnancy or being carrying it through, but where, in fact, that pregnancy was, for example, causing her enormous distress. A majority of the court said, yeah, that is something where the state is subjecting you to uh, deprivation of security of the person. That's a really important, I think, example of security of the person. We've seen, though, attempts in other cases to make security of the person cover everything that the state can do to you. And that's where I think Section 7 would probably be seen as being too broad. And we really, there we are relying on the courts to pull people back. That's a lot to cover in 30, 35 minutes, especially given how, uh, well, ambiguous, shall we say, or vague sometimes a Section 7 can be in terms of its application, both procedurally and substantively. But because of its reach, quite an important right, and it comes up again and again and again. So this has been a really useful overview. Uh, Chris, well, we're going to take a, a bit of a break in terms of our series. Uh, you're going on a well-deserved vacation. And Stephanie, you and I are going to be back with a couple of other podcasts that are a break from our, our series, as, as well as uh, revisiting our diversity and inclusion series. We have another episode of that coming up. So there'll be other podcasts appearing in Intrepid Podcast feed. But we're going to circle back again to our Muskoka Chair Chats and continue our march through the Charter when you return from vacation. So thank you very much, Charisma. You're very welcome. See you soon.